Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, as we come before you, and as we open your word, and as we see what you have to say through your servant Job about suffering, we pray, Lord, that you would come, that you'd be gracious to us, that you'd open our eyes, that you open our hearts, that you would uh, give us great strength and comfort in suffering. As, as Psalm 34 says, let the afflicted hear and be glad. And that would be my prayer for this morning, that the afflicted would hear uh, the book of Job and be glad, that we would have a joy that would sustain us through suffering. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this week, we, uh, last week we started a series, a summer series in the Old Testament, and we're calling Old Testament Family Reunion. And so the idea is like, almost like you're out there, imagine that was a family reunion, and, and Old Testament people show up. Old Testament people that were uh, believers, that, that trusted in the God of grace, but before Jesus came. And so we want to get to know these people as our own spiritual family and see how their lives point forward to the God of grace and point forward to Christ. And last week, Jim introduced us to Hannah, and uh, we also will have, we'll look at Esther's life and Samson's life and Nehemiah next week, uh, Josiah, Rahab, a lot of these people, and just see how they point forward to Christ. Um, and this week, what we're going to look at is we're going to be in the book of Job. And so if you guys want to turn to the book of Job, does anybody need a Bible? Anybody need a Bible? Bible's needed? You need a Bible? You need one? Tosh, you mind taking the Bible right there? Uh, and this guy right here needs a Bible. Thanks, Tosh. Um, what do we know about Job from the book of Job? Uh, first thing we know is that Job is a real historical person. Sometimes people doubt whether he's a real historical person, but both Ezekiel and James describe him as a real historical person. We know that Job was a very ancient man. Job actually probably lived around, either before or around the time of Abraham. So if you're reading through your Bible chronologically, you'd read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then you'd read the whole book of Job, then you'd read the chapter 12, where it introduces uh, Abraham. So we know he's a very ancient man. Um, we know he's a really good man. In Job 1.1, we see the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And we know that Job had a really good life. If you look at Job 1 uh, verse 2, it says, There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yokes of oxen. I don't even know what you do with all these animals. Uh, 500 female donkeys and very much servants. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And so this is a guy with a great life. Also, this is a man who was very godly. It's interesting that with all that prosperity, it didn't ruin him. In verse 4 of chapter 1, we see that his sons used to go up and hold feasts in the house, each one on his own day, and they would send and invite their sisters to eat and drink. And when the days of the feast had ended, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually." So we see Job is this very godly man, this man that understands, great for Father's Day, because he understood he, that he was the priest of his family, that he was accountable before God um, for the spiritual condition of his family. And so here he's offering sacrifices and praying. Job was a godly man. His prosperity didn't ruin him. He was, as we're all called to be as, as fathers, a pastor dad, you know. And, um, and Job, guys, is a huge book. And so we're not going to do all of it, obviously. It's 40-something chapters. But what we are going to do is drop into a few places within Job and just see what can we learn about suffering. And the first thing we can learn about suffering from the book of Job is suffering will find you. Happy Father's Day. 
I always do this on holidays. I don't know why. I did get on Mother's Day, though. That was really upbeat. But um, suffering will find you. Suffering is inevitable. And this is so counter to our culture. Our culture um, is a culture of denial and avoidance of suffering. Right? We live in a culture that's affluent and seems very safe and comfortable. And it gives us this false sense of security that somehow, if we played our cards right, we could avoid suffering. Job shows us that's not the case. I mean, Job had all the resources. I mean, here's a guy that's totally rich, and he has all these servants. He has lots of security, lots of protection, and yet suffering found him. You know, we read about him in the very beginning. We think, oh, what a great life, and we know what's about to happen because we know he's Job, right? We already know the story, and so we think it's about to hit him. You know, is he ready? Is he ready for this? And I want to make sure that when we say suffering, we're very concrete, because we could use the word suffering and think it's about someone else in some other country. But when, when we think about suffering, we think about in this room, if we were to just list the suffering that people are dealing with, even now, it would be overwhelming. I mean, when we say suffering, we mean things like circumstantial things, like job loss, financial disasters, um, school failures. We, th- we mean things in the body like autoimmune diseases and cancer and vision and hearing loss and arthritis and herniated discs and Crohn's disease and infertility. And, and by suffering, we mean things in the mind like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, OCD, schizophrenia, memory loss, overwhelming temptation, insomnia. That's all in this room, by the way. I mean, there's just an amazing amount that people deal with. It means things in relationships like wayward children and marriage distance and marriage conflict and lost relationships and um, hardships in being a caregiver and um, things like rejection and lost loved ones and past abuse and, and loneliness. I mean, you could go on and on, right? And so I want to be really concrete about suffering. And the thing is, guys, is our culture doesn't prepare us for any of that. Our culture doesn't give us tools or abilities to to deal with that or endure that at all. Traditional cultures have been a lot better at that. Traditional cultures have always kind of recognized the fact that life is suffering and given their people meaning and tools to deal with it. But our culture is not like that. Our culture, probably through affluence or whatever, gives no sense of meaning or ability to deal with it. The tactics are just denial and avoidance, which, by the way, with suffering, have a 100% failure rate. Okay, like denial and avoidance will do nothing to prevent suffering. But what's cool is the scriptures, on the other hand, are so rich in the area of suffering. A lot of people bring up the problem of evil and suffering as like, I don't believe in God because of this. Guys, the Bible is incredibly rich with, with help and resources for suffering. I mean, even starting with the first book of the Bible, we see that God created the world good without suffering. Human beings rebelled against him. Sin was led into the world, and you see suffering coming in because of that. You, we have whole books about suffering. I mean, how much of the Psalms is about suffering? You've got the book of Job is about suffering. And you hear that raw and honest questioning and crying out to God. Every emotion you could have, especially sadness, is depicted so vividly in Scripture. And then you have the prophets, and they cry out about suffering and why are these things happening. And they actually call God's people to actually um, be instruments of justice and alleviate suffering. Then you have books like the book of Hebrews or the book of 1 Peter, books that are largely devoted to suffering and dealing with it. And then you've got the book of Revelation, right, that shows that in the end, God is going to bring a world that has no suffering, Revelation 21 and 22. And then you've got the resources of like 2,000 years of Christian writing. I mean, how many, you know, you could read C.S. Lewis on suffering. You could read more contemporary, Tim Keller or D.A. Carson. Tons of people have written on suffering. You know, Sibs. I mean, there's tons of writing on suffering. John Newton, 
powerful on suffering. Um, Spurgeon, powerful on suffering. This morning, guys, I want to just look at one little piece. So I don't want you to think, okay, this is the message that handles everything about suffering. I'm just giving you one little piece, and I'm going to talk as fast as I possibly can to do it. Okay? Okay, so this morning, because we want to prepare for suffering. We want to prepare for suffering because we want to be like Job. We want to, we want to um, not curse God when suffering comes, but endure faithfully and glorify him in it. And we want to help each other do it, too. We all need to be prepared to help other people suffer well. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, I've said it before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's what the church is about, right? Church is a family where we've decided to live together and die together, quite literally, Right? That we're all going to endure suffering, and God has provided a body for us to serve one another. And so the first thing to realize from Job is suffering can't be avoided. Peter said this, Apostle Peter, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Our culture thinks it's strange. It's not strange. And so let's prepare. And let's prepare by meeting Job. So we're at this Old Testament family reunion. We meet this guy named Job. He's one of our most treasured spiritual ancestors because he helps us in this area of suffering. So secondly, what we learn from Job is that suffering is not meaningless. Seems meaningless. You know, you think like, why is this happening to me? There's always that feeling of like, this is absurd. This is meaningless. This is pointless. Um, This is one area, guys, where I don't think you know how rich you are as a Christian to know that suffering has meaning. Um, Atheist Richard Dawkins says this about suffering. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties you'd expect if, at the bottom, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. You're like, yikes. But you know what? If you don't believe in God, that's the only option. It's called nihilism. It means there's no meaning. There is no meaning if there's no God behind the world, and there's no meaning to suffering. But Job shows us, guys, that suffering isn't meaningless. It has meaning. Um, And and you can imagine that when this all hit Job, it seemed meaningless. It seemed absurd. I mean, take a look at Job 1.13. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job that said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then this is the best line. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire from God, probably lightning, fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking... There came another that said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck them down by, and, by the, and the servants by the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another man that said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they have all died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Like, that's absurd. You know, you just think like one thing after another. I mean, this is ridiculous. Have you ever had a day like that where one piece of bad news followed by the other and you're just thinking, this is ridiculous. There can be no good purpose to this. There's, there's, there's no point to this. And you, this you, we see it in this rhythm of while he was yet speaking, the poor guy is just beat up over and over again. You can imagine him going like, man, can it get any worse? 
Dangerous question. Job 2.7, so Satan went from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took pieces of broken pottery, which he scraped himself with while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we take good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He gets these boils, right? And he's using this pottery to like lance the abscesses on himself. He's doing a little self-surgery, right? Job 7, 5 says, Job described his boils this way. Check this out. My flesh is clothed with worms. So apparently there were maggots in them. And dirt. My skin hardens and then it breaks out afresh. A little description of his his boils. Guys, suffering feels so meaningless and absurd when it just keeps piling onto you. Think, okay, Lord, like that trial, that makes sense. We'll work with that. I got this. I see what you're doing. And then another one, you're like, I don't need two. And then another one, I don't need three. Like, I don't need, you know, it just seems meaningless. And if you're an atheist like Dawkins, then it must be meaningless. Suffering must be meaningless, right? Everything's meaningless. It's like Macbeth said, right? Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If you don't have God in this picture, it is meaningless. But the book of Job shows us it's not meaningless. And it's not meaningless, guys, because God is in control of our suffering. And we see that ultimately in the book of Job, that God's in control of our suffering. And I know when I say that, and I know what I mean by the word suffering, that it's very hard for people to take that truth in sometimes. Um, And I wouldn't even dare say it if it wasn't what scriptures say all the way throughout, right? It says that our suffering isn't meaningless because God's sovereign over it. And some people have decided, you know, hey, we got to get God off the hook on this. You know, it looks bad that he's, you know, allowing suffering. And so there's a, a doctrine called open theism. Have you guys heard of that? It's basically the idea that God doesn't know the future. And so he can't really be held responsible for the way things are going because he didn't know. You know, he knew it could go one way or the other way. Um, I don't know how that's comforting, number one. It doesn't seem comforting to me. It kind of takes one problem and makes a bigger problem, which is there is no God in control of all this. And secondly, I don't know how you could get that from the book of Job. But from the rest of Scripture, look at Job 1-2. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell down and worshipped. And he said, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked I'll return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Right? That's very clear. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the narrator says what? In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So the narrator said he was right. Right? Um, if you look at Job 2-9, when his wife says, Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? And by the way, don't be too hard on her. She lost all her kids. She's watching her husband in boils. Like, cut her slack. I think a lot of times we go like, you know, like, oh, that lady. And it's like, have you had what that lady had? You know, it's give her some time. I think she comes around. I mean, she doesn't get rebuked at the end like the friends do. So let's, let's give her some space. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And then once again, the narrator says, Job didn't sin with his lips. Narrator agrees. The whole book of Job assumes that God is behind our suffering. And I don't have time to unpack that whole dialogue between Satan and God in chapter 1. But what's clear is that Satan couldn't do any of these things without God allowing it. And so whether you want to say God ordains our suffering or he allows it, it's kind of turns out to be the same thing. Job and the rest of scripture tell us that God is in control of our suffering and that he's working good and wise purposes in it. And so our suffering isn't meaningless. It's under God's good and wise control. But notice that Job, being somebody that believes in the sovereignty of God, it doesn't stop him from weeping. 
Take a look at um, Job 1.20. It says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. It's really important, guys, to realize that both worship and weeping are, are godly responses to suffering. Understanding God's sovereignty does not eliminate weeping, and it shouldn't. Okay, I think sometimes people go, hey, God's in control, and so I need to be stoic about this. No, J.I. Packer said this. He said, there's nothing biblical or Christian or even human about the stiff upper lip, right? Both worship and weeping are right responses. As we look through Scripture, we see that. You know, you look through Job. Look through the Psalms. So there are Psalms of lament. So in the body of worship songs for the Old Testament people, they had sad songs, crying songs, weeping songs. Which is awesome because as the church would gather for worship, the worship leader would say, okay, we're going to sing this one nice and sad, right? It wasn't like everything had to be happy songs. And what that tells us is that we're called to worship in our grief. We're not called to worship instead of our grief. We can worship in grief. And the Psalms are a great picture of how to do that. And so if you're suffering today, feel no pressure to restrain your weeping. I think sometimes we have that feeling that we should. But we, we don't need to restrain our weeping. We need to be a church family where we can worship, even with raised hands and tears, right? And we can worship God like Job did in suffering. Fourth, what can we learn about suffering? For believers, suffering is not punishment. I think this is really important for us to see. Look at Job 2.11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon them, they came, each one from his own place. There was Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildab the Shuhite, which was the shortest of them, right? Is he was, yeah, shoe height? No, okay. I ah, know, that was bad. There you go, I'm waiting, I'm feeling it. Ah, it's coming, okay. And Zophar, the Namathite, and, and listen to this, they made an appointment together to show him sympathy and comfort him. And they saw him at a distance, and they didn't recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head and toward heaven, and, and they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word, for they saw he was in great distress. Guys, this is such a gift. This is such a gift that three friends would organize and show up and spend seven days sitting next to him without a word, waiting for him to speak. And this is a huge gift. This is what we call the ministry of presence, when you think about people in deep suffering and you don't know what to say and you don't know what would be the right things to say, you know what you can do? You can be present. And that's what his friends did. They did the ministry of presence. Any of us can do the ministry of presence. It just means being present, right? Weeping with the person, being present. Don't need to have any kind of answers. And it's so important, guys, because in suffering we can feel so isolated. Don't you feel isolated when you suffer? Job did. Take a look at Job 19.13. I think you need to see the inside of a sufferer and how isolating it seems. He says this, Job 19, 13. He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged to me. My relatives have failed me. My closest friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant and he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife and I am a stench to the children of my mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise up, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned their back on me. My bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, you who are my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. 
See the isolation? That's what suffering makes us feel like. It makes us feel like we're alone, like we're the only ones that have endured this, you know? And I think that's part of the enemy's devices too, right? Is to try and isolate us, make us feel like we're alone. But guys, we're not alone because we're all sufferers. The world isn't actually divided into sufferers and non-sufferers, right? We're all sufferers. We're all Job's, right? We're either Job before the storm or we're Job in the storm or we're Job after the storm, but you're all Job right? It's a common thing with all of us. Which, of you are, which one are you right now? Whoever you are right now, we need you here. We need Job before the storm, because Job before the storm has resources and abilities, like these friends to have a ministry of presence and to, you know, bring somebody food and, and, and spend time with them and encourage them. We need Job in the storm in our church, because you who are in the storm are encouraging the rest of us to treasure God. That was the big test here with Job, right? It was, will he curse God and die, or will he treasure God above all the things he loses? And you are here who are Job in the storm are doing that. You're being faithful, and you're trusting Christ in the storm, and it's a gift to us. It's a gift to us to see somebody in suffering that holds fast, because it reminds us, like, he is better than anything, you know? Job in the storm, we need you. Um, And then Job after the storm. Job after the storm is greatly equipped to minister to other people, right? 2 Corinthians 1 talks about that, that when you go through trials and difficulties, it equips you to minister to others. Well, Job's three friends were with him in silence for seven days, and they should have stopped there, okay? Like, best thing would have been, if they didn't know what to say, to go like, okay, we'll see you later, you know, or continue to be silent, but they didn't, right? They said a lot of dumb and hurtful things, and it's kind of confusing the first time you read Job because there's chapter after chapter of dumb, hurtful things, and it has a way of sucking you in and going like, yeah, that's right, you know, and then at the end, you're like, oh, no, it's wrong, right? Right? And spoiler alert, at the end, these three friends get rebuked by God at the end, and Job 42, the, the Lord said to the three friends, my anger burns against you, and he said, you know what? Bring some sacrificial animals. Job's going to pray for you guys, and we'll see what happens right? Like they're in that much trouble. That's bad. What dumb, hurtful things did they say? Um, There's chapter after chapter of it, and some of it's true and some of it's lies. It's a weird mixture of things, but a great summary is in Job 4-7. I think you read this one section, you'll get the idea. This is what they say. Remember who was innocent that was ever perished, And, and or when were the upright ever cut off? As I've seen it, those who plow iniquity sow trouble and reap the same right? So their basic idea was like, hey, stuff like this doesn't happen to good people. You did something wrong. You better look harder, right? You're being punished. Job's friends had this simple solution that if you're suffering, God's punishing you. They had a simple moralistic view of suffering. They have what we would call today karma view of suffering, Um, that you're getting what you deserve, you know, that it's payback, that suffering you experience today is payback for evil that you've done in the past or maybe a past life, if it's a religious type karma. Uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, who wrote uh, a great book on genetics called The Gene, uh, he said this. He said, Hindus have long believed that a person's fate was derived with near arithmetic precision by some calculus of the good and evil acts that they had performed in a previous life. God in this scheme was a glorified moral tax accountant, tallying and divvying out portions of good and bad fate based on past investments and losses. I mean, that's the picture that his friends have. They have this picture that if you're suffering, it's, it's, it's your own doing. It's karma, right? And our culture loves karma, which is interesting. You go on Instagram and there's like four million hashtag karma, right? And I'm sure they're pretty nasty posts too. People are like, karma for that person, you know, kind of a thing, right? 
I have no idea why anyone would like the idea of karma. I have no idea. People are like, well, I just believe in karma, and they say it with a smile. And I'm like, okay, I have no idea why you'd like karma. Do you really like the idea of you get what you deserve? Is that what you want? You get what you deserve? And that it's tallied up by a um, glorified moral tax accountant? And you're going to get payback for whatever you've done? And guys, how do you comfort someone if you believe in karma? Somebody's suffering, you come to them, what do you say? You comfort them badly. <laughs> you comfort them the way that Job's friends did. I mean, to come to somebody and go like, what did you do? Is like crazy kind of come. Grace, guys, though, if you're a believer, you're under grace. And grace is the opposite of karma. Karma is you get what you deserve. Grace is you get what Christ deserves because he got what you deserve on the cross. Grace is totally opposite of karma. And if you're in Christ, um, you are in grace. Karma uh, says that suffering is always payback, but the book of Job and the rest of the Bible say that that's never the case for a believer. The Bible does teach, though, guys, that, that God purifies us in suffering, and I think that's important to realize. God does purify us in suffering, but he doesn't punish us in suffering, and those are vastly different things. And so Job, we have here, he's a, he's a great and righteous man, but he's still a sinner. And as we read through the book of Job, we see some of that sin get expressed and God purifies it. Job wasn't being punished, he was being purified, and so are you if you're in Christ. You're being purified in your suffering. Fifth, we see that when God doesn't show the reason for suffering, he does show us himself. And I love this about the book of Job, because the book, for a book on suffering, it doesn't end like neatly with five points why you suffered. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, okay, this is a book on suffering. And then you get to the end, and you're like, it doesn't end with, like, a neat little answer to Job of why he suffered. At the end, he doesn't know about that conversation between God and Satan. He doesn't know that his suffering is playing out before an audience of, you know, millions of angels. Like, he doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know it's going to become a book that's going to encourage people. He doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know the reason for his suffering. He doesn't know um, what God is doing in it. It ends kind of strange, you know? Um, and that's something for you to realize too like even if you suffer in a way that no one else knows about God could be doing something amazing through it not just in you but like there's an audience of angels you ever even think about that like this all played out before an audience of angels they were seeing this and then later there's this book about I mean God was doing amazing good and wise things through Job's suffering and he never knows right? Some uh, writer joked about the end of it because, you know, it doesn't end tidy, but it does end with a bunch of animals, which is kind of interesting, you know? And one, one writer joked this way. He said, here's Job in a nutshell. Job, why? Friends, you sinned. Job, no, I didn't. God, look at all the cool animals, you know? And it kind of has that strange ending. You're like, what's going on here? By the end of the book, we don't get a clear answer for suffering. Job never sees the reason for his suffering, but you know what he does see? He sees God, and that's enough. That's what he sees. If you look at Job 38.1, God shows up. It says, then Yahweh answered Job out of a whirlwind. And then you look through Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, and it's this amazing, majestic picture of God. God is showing Job all of his majesty displayed before him. He's showing him what he's like. You remember Job's response at the end in chapter 42? He says, I had heard of you with the ear, but now I see you with my eye. Like the difference of knowing God at the end of his suffering was the difference between hearing and seeing. Guys, there are depths of the knowledge of God you will never have without suffering. Can you guys attest to that? 
You guys think about your lives and think about some of the things you've gone through, which were some of the most brutal, absurd things that happened to you. And now you look back and you go, you can see how God showed himself to you in a way he never, you never could have seen before. You know, a peaceful, easy life was not going to show you that amazing majesty of God. That's what Job tells us. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, which is largely, it's a myth about suffering and a really powerful story. At the end of it, the, the main character says this, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? That's the last line in the book. I just love it. Job never sees the reason for his suffering, but he does see God, and that's enough. And it'll be enough for you too. And then lastly, the God that we see in suffering is a suffering God. This is the coolest thing. This is the coolest thing about Christianity, is that the God we see in suffering is a suffering God. The God we know is a suffering God. The, our God is the greater Job. Jesus Christ came to be the greater Job, the truly righteous sufferer with no sin, that after suffering intercedes for us, his sinful friends. Isn't that amazing? He is the greater Job. And we have an advantage in our suffering that Job didn't have. We know that the God we call out to when we're suffering is a suffering God. He is the ultimate sufferer. Um, it's by seeing Jesus, that ultimate Job, that the ultimate sufferer, that we can have the only satisfying answer to suffering. He is the answer to suffering, to see him. In Jesus Christ, we see that God himself has joined us in our suffering. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Guys, you realize that no other religion has a God who suffers with us. It doesn't exist. John Stott said, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? We don't have a God that's immune to suffering. He suffered with us. Um, when we suffer, we, one thing we can't say to God is we can't say that he doesn't know. He does know. He knows what it's like to suffer. The God who sits with us in suffering, like Job's friend sat, God sits with us in suffering, and the God that sits with us in suffering has scars on his hands. Right? In Jesus Christ, we also see that God himself found a way to banish suffering from the world without banishing us. Because he is going to bring a world with no suffering, but the thing is, we don't deserve to be in it, right? Because we've actually inflicted a fair amount of suffering, right? We've actually, because of the way we've sinned against God and the way we've sinned against each other, we actually have inflicted a fair amount of the suffering that's in the world. If he's going to make a new world without suffering, it'd be a really smart thing to not allow us to be there. You know, we're part of the problem. But what we see in Jesus is we see God himself on the cross suffering what we deserved for the suffering we've inflicted. And guys, no other religion has that either. A God who suffers for you, for you. Jesus took our suffering that our sins deserve so that we could inherit a world without suffering. Which is why, guys, when we, when we suffer, one thing we, we can't think about why God's doing because there is the why. I mean, I have it too. Something happens, why? I mean, it's totally reasonable to ask why. It's good, reasonable, sane. One thing we can't say about the why is he doesn't care, right? No one goes to the cross for you that doesn't care. He cares. God is good, guys. Um, one of the things that um, I think is important is to think about when we trust God, we really have to believe in three things to really trust God in suffering. And I have a prop, which I never have. Um, three things. So this rope actually has three chords. And the thing that we need to believe to trust God in suffering are three things. We need to believe he's in control, because otherwise it makes no point to trust him. Uh, we need to believe he's good. We need to believe he's wise. 
You know, which one of those do you struggle with? You know, when suffering comes, really profound suffering, do you, do you, do you wrestle with he's, he's in control? Job didn't seem to wrestle with that one. Um, that he's wise. And wise, he could be like, you know, I understand you got things you need to do with me and change me, but this is not the route to do it. Okay, that's wise. And the other one would be, is he good? Is he good? And I think in the book of Job, that's the strand that the, that the enemy wants to go after, right? He wants to go after, is he good? And I feel like that's exactly what happens in my life, you know? When I endure suffering, the first thing that starts to go is, you know, is he good? And you just think about, like, as you're going through suffering, that's what he's going after, right? He's just going after, just fraying that, that cord in our, in our faith and our trust begin to, to break. And so we need to remember our, remind ourselves constantly, God is good. And the cross reminds us of that, guys. The cross reminds us that no matter what we're suffering, it's not because God isn't good and he doesn't care, because there's no God that would go to the cross for you if he didn't love you, if he didn't care, if he wasn't good. Cross shows us that he's good. And if you haven't already, and maybe there would be somebody in this room that hasn't yet turned to Christ, hasn't really yet repented of your sin and trusted in him, I just want to say, no one else is going to love you like that. Right? I mean, you just think about what he did. You think about that wooden cross, and, the, and the, we have the nails at the communion table that remind us, nails through his wrists, and he, he, as he hung there, he hung there in agony to pay for your sin. This is a person that loves you. So much. And I would just ask you, what sin is there that you love more than him? What's that thing that you won't let go of to come to him? And I just say this morning, let go of that. Receive this love. Um, and if you do that, let me know and we'll get you baptized on July 8th. Lastly, in Jesus we see that God promises restoration, not just consolation. I think this is super important. And we see a, a hint of that at the end of Job. But weak views of heaven don't help us with suffering. Weak views of heaven like that we're just going to live in a non-physical, ethereal, you know, white puffy clouds, blue background, some bad heart playing, you know, kind of a thing, an arch with St. Peter at a desk. It's like bizarre, right? Weak views of heaven, guys, where there's some sort of consolation, but there's not restoration, do not help us. They don't help us when we have real physical losses, real physical losses in our body, real physical losses in relationship, real physical losses in the world. But guys, Jesus offers us not just consolation, but complete physical earthly restoration. Um, and, and, and we see that at the end when Job's restored all his things. And Job knew, guys, that one of the ways he was going to do that is through a resurrection body. This isn't the only body you get. Some of you guys are suffering with your body. Um, Job knew that we get a resurrection body. In Job 19.25, he said this, For I know that my Redeemer... How would he know this, by the way? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, not theoretically, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. With my own eyes I will behold him, and not with another. My heart faints within me. So there's Job in his worm-infested, boil-covered body. You know, and I just ask you, do you have weakness in your body? Do you have failure in your body? Do you have pain in your body? Do you have things where, and some of you are young and you maybe aren't experiencing this yet. Some young people do. But as you get older, guaranteed, you start to feel this. It starts to fall apart, right? And it starts to hurt and it starts to fail and you start to find different diseases and syndromes and things in it. You know, for some of you, you suffer not just bodily, but mentally, you know, in, in this fallen world, a lot of us have issues with, you know, whatever it is, brain chemistry or whatever that we're dealing with. Where, And I just want to say to you guys, this isn't the only body you get and not even the best one. 
You know, because a lot of times you feel ripped off, right? Maybe you had some problem with your body since birth. Maybe it's come upon you now and you feel like this isn't the way it should be. My age, I shouldn't have these things. This isn't the only body you get, not even the best one. Paul talked about our bodies as a seed and that they get planted in the ground when we die and that they're raised glorious. The difference between a seed and a redwood. So he, he knew about this resurrected body. So that when he dealt with these boils and things like that, he knew that this isn't the only body he gets. He also, um, he gives us a resurrected world. And there's hints of this at the end of 42. If you look at 42 verse 10, it says, Then the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Interesting thing. You see all the twice the animals and all that? What is not double? What do you notice is not double in that chapter? His kids, right? His kids don't get doubled. It says he, has, he gets restored seven sons and three daughters. And you think, like, God didn't double his kids, too. And you know why? Because he still had the kids. I think it's an indication that his kids were believers. I think it's an indication that in the resurrection, Job has the doubled kids, right? He will receive them back by resurrection. And only in Jesus, guys, the greater Job, can we know for sure that all of our suffering is going to be turned to good. Once again, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, he said this, there are some that say that temporal suffering, there are some that say about temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this. Have you ever thought of that? No future bliss can make up for this. But they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even this agony into glory. As the resurrection is a total, physical, earthly restoration, we will lose nothing to suffering ultimately. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is amazing. We will lose nothing to suffering ultimately. As Tolkien said in The Return of the King, everything sad will become untrue. And the suffering that we have in this life is giving us something that's the only really real thing that we can even take with us, which is, I had a mentor that he passed away about a year ago, and his name was Will, and he used to always say, the only thing we can take with us is the depth of our relationship with God. Isn't that true? In suffering, we're getting that. We're getting the only thing we can take with us, which is the depth of our relationship with God. It's like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, so we do not lose heart. Though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's that relationship with the Lord. For this light and momentary affliction, and we know Paul got serious affliction. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What God is allowing you to go through is giving you some benefits, and you just need to believe that he's giving you some benefits, some blessings that are going to reverberate in the world to come for millions of years. You know, and... Um, there was a, a real scare that we went through last year. I won't go into the details of it. I'll probably go into it at some point. But um, there was a couple-day period when I had, we had a serious health scare. And I went through all the stages. You know, I went through, like, the stage. I, well, I was just mad. I wasn't mad at God. I was just mad. I don't know what that was about. That was a weird one. I was mad. I was depressed. And then I got to a point, though, where I was like, you know what? This is going to happen. Then God must have some reason in this that's like an eternal weight of glory. You know, that there's something he's doing that, like, millions of years from now in the world to come, we're going to be thankful he did it. And, it. and it surprised me, actually, that I could even go there. You know, it was really encouraging, because God will sustain us in these things. He is, if you are Job right now in the storm, keep treasuring Jesus. It will be worth it. Every bit of worship, every bit of trust in him, every bit of serving him in your pain will be worth it. 
It won't be much longer and you'll see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, making us a family together that we can bear one another's burdens and we can suffer, we can live together and die together, as Paul said. Thank you so much for that. And we also thank you that you made us a family with people that lived like, what, 4,000 years ago or something? Um, and that he's our brother. He's our ancestor. He's, he's living a life like ours in relationship with you. And um, Lord, we thank you that we have so much more clarity about our redemption and our future than he had. But we just thank you, Lord, for what you did in his life, that you held him in your grip of grace. That he didn't lose his faith because you supplied his faith. And Lord, we thank you that you do that for us too. That you will supply the faith we need when we need it. And I pray for anyone that's here that's, that's going through, that's Job in the storm, Lord. I pray that they'd find deep comfort, Lord. Continue to bring them back to your word in the Psalms and in Job and um, your servant Paul's writings and to just drink deeply of the help that's there. Lord, you're doing something great in this world. It's super painful, though. And uh, we pray that you'd hold us in it. And uh, Lord, help us to worship you and praise you. Help our hearts not to curse you when difficulty comes. Lord, we love you. And for those of us that aren't in a trial, Lord, we just pray that we would be the, the, the friends that they need, the ministry of presence. And when we speak words, we speak words of grace and encouragement words of truth. We thank you, Lord, as we worship you, as we take communion, we pray that you would be glorified in all these things. We thank you for, the, for Father's Day today. We thank you for our, uh, the fathers that we have in our lives. And, uh, and we thank you that you, like David was saying, you are the ultimate father, that you have adopted us, made us your kids, and that you enjoy us, and that you're so ready to receive us anytime we want to repent or draw near to you, that you are so ready and available to receive us. And we just thank you for that, that you would remove our sin to adopt us as your own. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.